Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Stephen Kotler, who's a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Stephen, thanks for coming on the show. Good to be with you guys. So let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're trying to solve. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist and I've, I've, you know, the, the, the great thing about being a journalist is you get to explore anything you're curious about. And, uh, when I started out my career, um, the things I was most curious about were, uh, really those moments in time when the impossible became possible. And that's what I spent essentially 30 years examining, whether that it was in sports when people, you know, pulled off feats that had never done before when the sci-fi ideas became science fact technology you know kind of all those domains that's sort of what uh what was has been my core subject and you know when you think about uh the impossible whenever you see that happening i tended to discover you you tend to see two things you see people figuring out ways to extend human capability and people harnessing disruptive technology when those things tend to come together often things that had never been for been possible become possible. So I wrote six books on technology and exponential technology. And uh, I wrote six books on extending human capability. And when the human capability side of my work sort of continuously led me to the state of consciousness known as flow, which is an optimal state of consciousness, where we feel our best and perform our best. Um, you know, after a bunch of books and articles on the subject, I sort of decided that uh, I wasn't going to uh, solve the problems I was interested in solving by staying on the sidelines. And I founded the Flow Research Collective, which is a neurobiology research and training institute, where uh, on the research side, we are partner with everybody from scientists at UCLA, USC, Stanford, Imperial College, London. And we study what's going on in the brain and the body when people are performing at their very best. And uh, and then we take what we've learned and use it to train everybody. We train about a thousand people a month on average. These stretches from kind of members of the U.S. Special Forces and and, and um, professional athletes all the way through, you know, C C-suite executives from most of the Fortune 500 top companies, all the way to like soccer moms from Indiana and insurance brokers from Iowa. So really a broad swatch of people, which gives us a huge data set on on human performance also to work with. So that's sort of me and what I do and how I got here. Thank you. Yeah, Steve, Stephen, you and I have run into each other a couple of times in the past. And the last time I think was at some event. I can't even remember what it was. In I think it was the Future of Jobs Summit at Singularity University. I want to guess, but I, I may have seen you after that. Yeah, there was um, one other event after that. But yeah, the Future of Jobs Summit was, uh, I, I thought that was quite intriguing at the time. And uh so the um, the flow work that you've been doing, um, I, kind of the way I, I think about it is it enables you to tap into your inner Superman, and uh, you actually named one of your books that. Uh, can can you can you talk a little bit about how 
how you gravitated towards this and how this kind of became uh, integrated into your life? Well, whenever you see the impossible become possible, if you start interviewing the people involved, and this could be in science and technology and art and sport, they all talk about being in flow while um, doing their work. Now, for those unfamiliar with the term, it is technically defined as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. Uh, more specifically, flow refers to any of those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. We get so focused on the task at hand that everything else just seems to disappear. Action awareness will start to merge. Your sense of self will diminish or vanish completely. So will bodily awareness sometimes. And uh, time will pass strangely. Sometimes it'll slow down. You'll get a freeze from effect. Maybe anybody's been in a car crash. More frequently, what's, what's really common is, is you get so sucked into an experience, five hours go by in like five minutes. And throughout in this state, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So I, you know, I, I think my work, originally I started hearing about flow a lot in action sports communities. Initially, um, there were, you know, millions of synonyms for the state at this particular time um and uh but it, it kept showing up and then as i started to move a little bit out of action sports and into you know uh flow is really common in coding it's really common in video game and video game design it's really common in network design and circuit design and you know uh uh Reese Jones, one of the one of the guys who you I know you, I think you know Reese. He's one of the guys who helped develop the internet. Um, he basically says, look, if you if you look at all the kind of foundational skills that develop Silicon Valley, they're all better in flow. And in a sense, you could you can say that flow helped build the valley. And that tends to be true with any community of innovation that you look at. There tends to be a tremendous amount of flow being generated, which is what's driving that innovation forward. But it kept showing up, and at the time. You know, neuroscience was an interest. Was in the 1990s, early 1990s, when I started doing this work, was really an interesting place to be, because for the very first time, we were starting to be able to link kind of neurobiological changes to actual behavior, and that really hadn't been possible before. But all kinds of fMRI brain imaging technology started to make that possible, and so for the very first time, we started to be able to figure out kind of how human beings. Um, are behaving, why they're behaving the way they're behaving, et cetera. And the initial work on flow started being done. And I got involved right at, at this time. In fact, uh, my early mentor, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who was then at the University of Pennsylvania, he had been working on what happens in the brain when people experience what's technically called cosmic unity, the sensation of being one with everything. It's fairly common in meditation, but it's really common uh, in action sports and the arts, right? Action sport athletes, surfers will talk about becoming one with the wave or one with the mountain. And artists will talk about becoming one with the painting or kind of one with the dance. And um, he had figured out why that happened uh, in meditation. And I had sort of approached him and said, hey, you know, the same kind of focus you're seeing in meditation, you need to ride a wave or, you know, do X, Y, and Z. I would guess, do you think we're looking at the same thing? Is this the same mechanism? or totally different. What, what are we looking at? And we spent a, a while at that point, a couple of years, just sort of piecing it together. And it turns out to be the same mechanism. Um, and it was just such a wonderful, like, oh my God, we can decode the secrets to ultimate human performance. We could figure out how this stuff works. That it was just, you know, too fun. I'd never encountered anything so exciting in my life. Well, what is the mechanism? 
So um, it's not a simple question to answer. Uh, when we move into flow, there are significant changes in, in most aspects of neurobiological function. So we see uh, changes in everything. Uh, what parts of the brain are active and inactive uh, is a big one. So uh, during normal waking experience where we are right here right now, uh, your brain is producing a beta wave, which is the signal for awake and alert and paying attention. Um, Flow actually takes place on the borderline between alpha and theta, so much slower brain waves. Alpha is sort of daydreaming mode. Theta is where you are in REM sleep, and there's a borderline. Flow, that's the baseline of flow. The brain will pop all over the place, but it will return to that baseline. Neural anatomically, we see shifts in processing areas under normal conditions. Your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right behind your forehead, tends to be very, very active. This is where kind of executive function is housed, long-term planning, logical decision-making, uh, your sense of morality, your sense of willpower, all that lives in your prefrontal cortex. Inflow, this portion of the brain deactivates. The technical term is transient, meaning temporary hypofrontality, hypo, H-Y-P-O. It's the opposite of hyper. It means to slow down or deactivate. And frontality, prefrontal cortex. So why does time pass so strangely in flow? Time, it turns out, um, is something of a network calculation. And the network that calculates time is all over the prefrontal cortex. And as parts of that network go down, as this portion of the brain deactivates in flow, we lose our ability to separate past and present and future and plunge into kind of an experience that researchers talk about as the deep now or more poetically, the eternal present. Um, same thing, by the way, happens to our sense of self. Self is another sort of network activity. Self is created by a bunch of different structures in the prefrontal cortex working together, also with older parts and deeper parts of your brain. But when those structures go down, we lose the ability to create our sense of self. So that happens. We see changes in, in what networks are active in the brain. We see a lot of neurochemical changes. Five of the most potent kind of performance-enhancing reward chemicals the brain can produce all show up during flow. Um, maybe the only time we get all five of those chemicals at once. So there's a profound shift. And it's gotten to the point, this is just sort of the <laughs> neurobiology. But flow science has advanced to the point where we're starting to get really good physiological signals. We know... Uh, Flow may, it, it may not have a heart rate uh, or heart rate variability signature. We know what cortisol is doing in flow, um, but we think that pre-flow, there's a heart rate variability signature for that, and it's gotten to the point that there are face reading signatures for flow. So we know uh, there's more research that needs to be done on this, but uh, work, uh, work that was done in, in Germany and in Sweden tells us that there's a face reading signature for flow, that your frown muscles are actually... Uh, deactivated or paralyzed or less active in flow. Um, that's actually, you can't have a bad time in flow. Flow is always a positive affective experience, but that frowning, it's not a set. It doesn't, it, when you frown, it's actually an expression that you're doing work. Flow is this feeling of effortless effort. Like you're being pushed into it through what you're doing by a force greater than yourself kind of thing. So you, it doesn't register as effort. And instead you see smile muscles hyperactive in flow. So um, I'm assuming there's a bunch of uh, do's and don'ts to get into a flow state. Like, I'm sure you don't get up in the morning and have a glass of Jack Daniels to start off your day. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I'm sure you don't have a, uh, a gallon of Red Bull that you drink in the morning. You either, guys don't so. do those things? Uh, yeah, I, I was going to say, Thomas, like, what's, what's up with you? What is, <laughs> how do we do things in your house? Yeah, that's, that's the <laughs> only way to start the you day. You know, seriously, where <laughs> I come from. Um, 
But uh, so um, flow is interesting. It is a universal. So it shows up in anyone, anywhere, provided certain initial conditions are met. All uh, mammals can get into flow. It's not even just humans. It's all mammals. Uh, how, do, how do you know that? How has that been established? So uh, it used to be, so, the, the, so one of the early experiments, they literally taught a, uh, a ferret, a dog, and a human how to run on a treadmill, and then they were <laughs> measured for uh, a ma- anandamide, same mm-hmm. psychoactive that shows up in marijuana, right? But mm-hmm. it's also, it code, it's, it's everywhere in the body, and it codes for uh, uh, its pain relief. And so runner's high is often an animal shows up in runner's high and they found it in dogs and humans. They didn't find it in ferrets and they thought that was the cutoff. And then uh, more recent work realized that the endocannabinoid system, um, which governs this is super old. We now know it's, it's it governs all, all stress responses in most mammals. It's like a second yeah. immune system almost. So that old idea went out the window and now they think it's almost all mammals. I would tend to think it's probably more social mammals uh, is, is what is where it's going to end up in the end. That's a long, complicated answer, and we'll go sideways for a mile if you ask me about it. But I think that's where it's going to come out. But they do it by uh, asking the neurochemicals that underpin the experience, because that's the biggest change is neurochemically. How old are they? And what organisms can produce them? And there's a, in the literature, there's a lot of uh, this humans and dogs and flow together. You see this in dog training work and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, horse human flow. So cross species flow. This is really common in the riding world. If you go into sort of the literature that's around um, everything from equine therapy, they, they talk about kind of horse rider flow in, in equine therapy as a vehicle for therapy. It shows up a lot. Um, so those are all more social animals. I, I'm less sure it's going to show up in really isolated individual species um but that's what that's the thinking uh, and the re- that research by the way uh the, the treadmill study was done either it's either i think it's the university of arizona i get it wrong it's either arizona state or the university of arizona but i think it's the university of arizona um where they did that work i wrote about it I, I, in my book a small furry prayer um i cover almost all the stuff that has been written about the evolution of flow the original thinking it was runner's high Right. And we run down our our prey. Humans were the only species to evolve, run really long distances. We would run down our prey and they thought, hell, anybody got a little anandamide or endorphins pain relief, you're going to run farther. You're going to get more prey. You're going to have health, you know, better health as a result and et cetera, et cetera. That's an evolutionary driver. Um, That was the original thinking. Um, Now uh, that may still be there. There's a but there's a couple other ideas that are floating around, too. Okay. And I didn't mean to take us down. That no, road, it's but. all right. I can, I really could talk about the evolution of flow for the next two hours. Cause it's fascinating, but it's really still. A <laughs> story. Yeah. But when it, when it comes down to the do's and don'ts, right. so the do's and don'ts is really simply, um, there's a bunch of don'ts and rather than going into those, I can just give your listeners, uh, something that they could use to do this for themselves. We go to www.flowblocker.com. There are six major blockers of flow. We've just built okay. a diagnostic and it'll tell you, it'll help you identify what's st- the main thing standing between you and more flow and how do you clean up that mess. On the other side of that coin, what's really important and, and, and what is really worth knowing is that there are 22 known triggers for flow. There are probably way more, but we know about 22 of them. And 
The easy way to think about this is flow follows focus. The only way the state appears is when all of our attention is in the right here, the right now. That's what the triggers do. They either uh, they all drive attention to the present moment. They do it three ways: they either drive norepinephrine and or dopamine into our system. These are performance-enhancing neurochemicals. They do a bunch of different stuff in the body, but one of the things they do is massively enhance focus. So either those two chemicals are being driven into our system and or uh, we lower the triggers can lower cognitive load. Cognitive load is all the crap you're trying to think about at any one time. If I lower cognitive load, I liberate more energy and you can repurpose that for attention in the present moment. That's how the triggers do their work. Turns out, depending on personality, genetics, a lot of, a lot of stuff like that, diff Different people are, are a little more susceptible to different, all the triggers will work, but which ones work for best for you or best for me or best for Thomas, those, those can be different a little bit. And they change over the course of your life too, as you change and evolve as a person, which triggers you're going to be reaching for. But whenever you see um, <clears throat> a community of innovation, a high flow community, you tend to see cultures built around these triggers or cultures where the, where the triggers represent values that are really important to the culture, things like that. Um, but as I said, it's ubiquitous. So anybody, anywhere, everybody listening to this can get into flow and get more flow. And one thing I want to mention, Thomas, you said earlier, it is kind of like, you know, your inner Superman woman hero. And that is a, it's a fairly correct statement. You know, there, we've spent 20 to 25 years, we, the field of flow researchers, trying to measure flow's impact on performance. And if you just look on the cognitive side of it, we know that flow amplifies motivation, grit, uh, accelerates learning rates, enhances all aspects of creative problem solving and innovation, expands empathy and perspective taking, your ability to see things from other people's perspectives cooperation, collaboration, the list sort of goes on. Um, and sometimes, depending on whose numbers you're going by, but on average, you're seeing spikes that are like four or 500% above baseline. So huge spikes in performance available to everybody oh. when we're in this state. That's remarkable. So to approach it from the other side, what are the the tasks that are more susceptible to drawing flow out of a person? It's, it's universal, but... I yeah, it is. so it's one of the clearest, well, most well-established things about flow is... Not only is it universal, it shows up irregardless of, you know, race, ethnicity, uh, economic background, and independent of task. So when the original work on flow was done that, that taught us that the state is universal, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was then often called the godfather of flow psychology. He was then running the University of Chicago Psychology Department. He did a global study went around the world asking people about the times in their life they performed at their best and felt their best. When I say global, Navajo sheep herders, Italian grape farmers, Detroit assembly line workers, expert rock climbers and neurosurgeons and dancers and stockbrokers and elderly Korean women and teenage Japanese gailed motorcycle gang members. I mean, they literally ask everybody. And it the state arises independent attacks. There are certain things we know, for example, if there's too much fear, specifically norepinephrine um, in your system, uh, or too much cortisol, usually both of those things show up in a, with a heavy stress response, that can block flow um, and things like that. So it's, but it's not, it's very independent of tax. Your head has to be sort of right in how you approach the task. There are if then variables that matter here a lot, but it really, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're into it you can get into flow. You've, you've worked with uh, lots of other 
people in in writing your books and it seemed like um, your partnership with Peter Diamandis has been uh, quite a successful venture. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how you uh, first came to know Peter and how you started working together? Yeah, um, <clears throat> as I said, I my beat as a journalist, one of my beats was um, those moments the impossible became possible. I literally had a list of 25, 30 sci-fi ideas, including private space travel okay. um, that were that I was watching, right? <laughs> and I was waiting and uh, I heard about Peter, um, you know, like in, in a really weird backwards. I knew a rocket engineer who was working on Craig Breedlove's Spirit of America car, which was the attempt to drive a car right. through the sound barrier. And um, two things were made really clear on that thing. Everybody kept saying, you know, it's harder to drive a car through the sound barrier that was sort of like the ground was sort of prepared in a sense for what I met Peter because everybody else thought he was nuts at the time. But I had just had a bunch of really bright engineers saying, no, no, this is totally possible because they, we had, they were comparing it to something that was impossible that they had just done. And I, the lead engineer, a guy named Desir Molnar, um, I, I always do this when the last question I ask anybody I find who's really interesting is, hey, man, what's the coolest thing you know about right now in the world? Like, what are you paying attention to? What are you into? And because uh, you'll always get great story ideas as a journalist, right? Um, yeah. Oh, there's this, there's this crazy dude named Peter Diamandis. He just put up $10 million for the first person who can build a private spaceship that can go. In, and I went, private spaceship? Wait a minute, that's on my damn list. And I, <laughs> like, I literally, I was off and running. I met Peter and it was, I wrote the first, we think it's the first like big piece anybody wrote on the XPRIZE. It was the first oh. major, uh, I think it was for GQ magazine, which at the time was probably the the, biggest kind of men's magazine in, in the world it had a circulation of over a million it was and it was first uh big press the x prize had gotten and peter loved my writing um and uh he uh he actually hired me uh to teach him how to write oh, and, uh, okay. <laughs> just for like he really loved my writing he was like can you teach me how to do that and i you know and so i worked with him for a couple of months and we ended up becoming friends and I would report on the X Prize and various things. And we sort of fell out right after the X Prize was won. We fell out of touch for about five years. But I had been um, I had been working on environmental, big environment. I'm a longtime environmentalist. My wife and I run an animal sanctuary. I've covered the environmental movement for 20 years as a journalist. I was very active in these causes. And I was starting to look at how exponentially accelerating technology was giving us leverage against these environmental challenges. Peter at the same time was looking at how these exponentially accelerating technologies were helping to solve like grand challenges that humans were facing. I care about plants and animals and ecosystems and people, Peter cares about people. And, right. um, and he sort of called me up one day, I don't know, I didn't talk to him in a long time and said, Hey, I've got this idea for a book. And he sort of laid out what was, half of abundance and i was like dude i think i got the other half because i've got i've been looking at the environmental side of this same thing and the same thing you're seeing on poverty and healthcare shortages and energy scarcity and water shortages i'm seeing on you know deforestation and climate change and biodiversity loss and things like that so that's how that came together and you know in the books i always say that like if it's neuroscience psychology or anything environmental it came out of my head Everything else probably came out of Peter's head. And the way we read that we, we've had an ongoing, we've got 
the general rule of our collaboration is he has final say on content. I have final say on copy. We each okay. get three vetoes over the course of a book. And I always <laughs> say the reason that Peter and I work so well together is because we can, you know what it's like writing a book. You're going to lose your mind a couple of times along the way. Oh, right? yeah. It's just yeah. so like uh, Peter and I can like <clears throat> totally go crazy and start screaming at each other. And then like 10 seconds later, just start laughing and like go back to work. Right. We don't take it personally. Like we both oh. understand <laughs> it, it's just going to happen um, every now and again. And so we sort of like blow up. But I mean, we've had it's a 25 year friendship at this point. And I and I really think that if if I've one of the reasons I think I've managed to accomplish whatever I've managed to accomplish in my life is was when one of your really close friends unlocks the space frontier. You're right. kind of like, well, yeah. okay, what the hell? I mean, if he can do that, because like I know Peter as a guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. I knew him when the X Prize was essentially an idea and right. just getting started. And like we've known each other for so long that I have a very different relationship with him. And so he's just a, an old dear friend and you're like, oh my God, okay, this old dear friend has started 27 companies and helped unlock the space frontier and help launch a billion dollar industry and blah, blah, blah. You're kind of like, well, okay, what can't I do? Right. You know what I mean? So it's really like, uh, that's really sort of helped, I think helped me a lot. And he's just been a great friend over the years. We've had a lot of fun together. That's, that's really fantastic. Have, having friends that inspire you is such a huge asset in life. It's really a big deal. One thing I wanted to ask you, and it's sort of random and I guess a bit out of left field, but this is as good a time as any is if you have any advice for people who like to write or might consider being journalists, if if they want to climb the same mountain you've climbed. Take flow for writers. What's that? Everything I, I spent 10 years taking everything I learned about writing and turning into a course, a digital course called Flow for Writers. You can get you can access it through my website or through the Flow Research Collective. Um my, my website for sure. Um, and it's, uh, it's a four part program. A quarter of it is devoted to everything there is to know about the craft of writing from like how to interview people, how to structure a book, how to develop a style, how to edit everything you possibly imagine. I, I do a section on the business of writing. I do a section on the neuroscience of creativity because you obviously that's what you're doing when you're writing. And then I do a final section on flow and writing and it's, all tucked together. Um, and literally that's like, I don't, that is all of my, it's literally all of my advice. And I will say without naming names, um, I train this, almost every thought lady you can imagine who's written a book has taken my class first. Wow. Like it's, uh -huh. I, I often say we used to teach it live and I used to joke and say, you know, I'm often the least well-known person in the class. <laughs> it was like, it'd be freaky. You'd look around the room and you'd be like, whoa, this is a hell of a room. Yeah. It's a good thing I know how to write because these people know how to do a whole lot of other shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, no, that's, I mean, I, you know, I, I can give you more specific advice if you want, but honest to God, like that's what I did. It grew out of a, I have a friend, Neil Strauss, who's another uh, big author. who's written yeah. a lot of New York times bestselling uh, books. And we were talking 10, 15 years ago um, at an event about all the little tips and tricks and things that we had learned over the years and that helped us have careers. Cause he was also a journalist. Um, and we had, we had sort of similar careers and, I realized after I was done talking to him, I was like, fuck, if I would have learned this 10 years ago, you could have saved me a decade and shit and added zeros to my income. Yeah. Like it was such, and I was like, and Neil sort of like put it aside and forgot about it. But I was like, no, no, this, 
this is cool. And I kept sort of working on the list. And I realized by the end of it, I was like, with my knowledge of writing um, and my knowledge of flow, I have a window on this craft that, that most people just don't have. Um, right. and, uh, and which is why I think the course is, is, is so strong, but, um, it all got written down and now thanks to COVID, it all got digitized. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> so, so where, what projects are you working on now? Uh, do you um, a preview I, of anything or is this all hush hush? No, uh, no. I, so, uh, I mean, obviously the new book, the art of impossible, uh, which is the first kind of how to playbook on peak performance I've ever written just came out. And so that one's going crazy. Um, I have a, uh, believe it or not, I have a new, I write, I, I don't know if you know this or not. I write cyberpunk sci-fi novels as well. Didn't know that. So I've got one of those, another one of those coming out next November. I just finished a final audit on that. The thing I'm most excited about, and this is, this has been years of work is, um, at the, um, we have been working on we, my company, the Flow Research Collective, and my, and my team specifically, and really me and a couple other neuroscientists have been working on what happens at a neural dynamical level, so network level of the brain, um, during flow state onset. So what basically what goes on in the brain in a network level during the first two seconds of flow um, is a question nobody's tried, to, nobody's been able to answer before. We have uh, good images of people once they're already in flow, but the actual onset of the state has been something of a mystery. Um, we know about the triggers, but actually that the changes in the brain as you transition into flow and why exactly um, hasn't uh, been identified. So we, that work is coming out probably later this year. And the really exciting thing about it is um, there are in that research, there are seven really clearly seven, five, five to seven, depending on how you break it down, really clearly identifiable signals that Mark flow state onset that nobody's found before. So the good news is it's super testable, right? So like we've got this great big theory of flow that we've been working on for a couple of years and it's super, super, super testable. So which will, you know, <clears throat> we're, 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 as soon as this paper is done and literally in the next two to three weeks, we're going to start building simulations that's the first uh, version of, of, of research we're going to do. And then we'll start actually taking things into the lab and, and trying to measure different things. Is, is that, are um, you going to build neurochemical models? Is that what you mean by simulation? We will probably try to simulate all the networks. Okay. Um, most, well, you know, when you, when you do, uh, when you work at kind of the population level of neurons, most of it's done that way and simulate using simulations because you've just, they're complex systems. Yeah. So that's right. That's what you got to do. Essentially do complexity modeling. Yeah, the, the last time I was over in Korea, they took me on a tour of uh, this uh, area, this one community called Book City over there. And all of the publishers have offices there and there's print, printing companies that have offices there. Like the Lower and, East Side in New York, <laughs> right? I mean, and, and, and you've, you've been working in, uh, in uh, kind of the print publishing world forever. Um, and, that's an industry that's gone through tons and tons of changes along the way. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what you see coming in the future and oh, how this is going to morph and shift? It's a great question. So it's, that's an interesting question because, you know, I watched the bottom drop out on publishing twice, right? Like yeah. literally I, I like to tell people that when the dot-com crash occurred, I took a 300% pay cut overnight 
Yeah. Um, lost a job <laughs> and took a 300% pay cut overnight. Um, yeah. And so did everybody else. Um, and then the industry went completely away. What is interesting, though, is um, you can't, you probably are aware of this. <clears throat> so one of the things I'm really excited about <clears throat> that's coming, a lot of people pointed out how much technology is sort of gutted publishing and, and gutted, you know, that sort of that, that print content. One, I think it's starting to stabilize. So like the book industry and the magazine industry, there was a, there was a big hemorrhaging, but now it's starting to stabilize. And I think uh, we'll see it sort of like radio, diminished capacity, magazines specifically and newspapers, diminished capacity, but actually going really strong inside of a smaller niche. Um, so that's one. Two, the thing that I think is interesting is sooner or later, we're going to get blockchain back micropayments. It's going to uh -huh. close the loop between content producers and content customers. And that hasn't happened yet. A lot of people have played with it. You know, Patreon is the best anybody can do sort of right now with anything like that model. And it, that's an interesting model. But I think micropayments are coming and that's going to unlock some stuff we hadn't seen before. And the other thing that's really interesting to me um, is that it used to be, and probably still up till now, but this is going to last not much longer, you could sort of game the system, right? Like if you if you knew SEO keyword kung fu and whatever, like oh, yeah. you know, like the marketers can out can outproduce the the quality artists, right? Because right. Of, of what you can do on the back end. But what's happening is the AIs that run the search engines are now able to read entire books and judge them, right? Um, and okay. watch entire movies and judge them. So all the sort of like back end marketing kung fu. Um, that allowed non-quality material to sort of like rise the top and get a lot of it, a lot more attention than maybe it deserved. That stuff is going away because the so AIs are. So going you don't to see to... some AI-powered kung fu coming in. To... I, I, I maybe, <laughs> but I like not. There's going to be for a little while. Quality <laughs> is going to win, and the good news is the I'm going to be here to. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna be here to see it. That's all that matters to me. So, I'll, I'll, you're such a cynic, Thomas. I'm curious as to what you think the blockchain micropayments are gonna add because it's not like it's impossible to tip riders through PayPal or buy me a coffee or something. Now, like that that model exists. So, what what do you see as the big sea change that's gonna come about as a result of the blockchain becoming ubiquitous? So, what I think is the difference. I mean, the problem is there's just too many steps still, right? And yeah. an ideal blockchain system allows me to click a little window in my computer and, you know, the every I like I want to read this content. It's worth a penny to me. Here's that penny. Okay. Right. And it's that's you. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. The You know, this as well as I do. The minute like you take something and that should be one click and make it two, three, four, five steps, you know, Every time you every time you have to make an additional decision, you get used drop off rates. So I don't think we've seen a system where there's sort of one to one exchange. And I also have seen, don't think we've seen a system where um, quality could trump sort of noise making. And I think the two things coming together, they're interesting to me. That's what I, I, you asked me about. I'm not a futurist, right? Like everybody around me, all you other guys are actually futurists with this stuff. I tend to. You know, I tend to be very practical and what can we do with the stuff today, right here, right now. You're and sometimes I write about where it's going in the future, but I don't, that's really not my core work. Um, 
And you know what I mean? I'm much more interested in how do we harness disruptive technologies to tackle global gland challenges that are right here, right now, not what does it mean? You know, I, I, certainly I poke at that stuff in my sci-fi, but I keep it in my sci-fi because I, I have no clue. Well, so to kind of keep with that theme, uh, I think it was eight or 10 years ago, you wrote an article for Popular Science about how it might someday be possible to scan our brains to better design horror movies that terrify oh, us. Oh, yeah, to no, the- no, we, that was an, we actually did an experiment. We took, we wanted to, so I had done some work around the, like, sort of like the birth of neuromarketing back in the early 2000s, yeah. middle 2000s, right? And, you know, what the first wave of neuromarketing taught everybody, even though the, the, the scientists involved, Reed Montague, Greg Burton, like brilliant, brilliant, brilliant men and women involved in it. But what we all figured out is, oh, those signals don't mean what we think they mean, right? right. It wasn't like, it wasn't nearly sort of as clear as, as anybody thought, but I sort of paid attention as the tech evolved and evolved and evolved. And I noticed this really weird shop in San Diego that was really outside the mainstream, but they were secretly like working with really big names in Hollywood doing like, and I was like, okay, what are they doing? Who are these people? You know, really interesting crew um, owned one of the first, first private groups to ever own like a three chip fMRI. And um, anyways, we took a horror movie and uh, watched it in the scanner and we wanted to see, um, could we use the scanner to make editing decisions that would make the movie scarier based on kind of, you know, like art scale ratings, how scary was this scene kind of thing. And, um, you know, I just wanted to see, is it going to be possible? What do the brain scans look like? And it turned out, it was really interesting because of the particular movie we were watching, um, though at the peak of their horror scenes, they would go from color to black and white and very grainy and watching it, it looked really creepy. Like you were like, Oh, that's really creepy when you were watching it. When you looked at the brain scans, your brain's kind of flattened out when that happened. Like neurobiologically, your brain really wasn't engaged at all. And even though it looked kind of creepy, it was flatlining reactions. And so we tried to edit around that to see, you know, was it scarier with it? And, um, you know, did, did we make the movie scary? I think a little bit, you know what I mean? Could you, is this a, avenue that's going to be open you know is this going to be a new kind of filmmake maybe i mean right now it's you know you can't really do that it would be billions of dollars to try to you know go scene yeah. by scene in a scatter and who knows if you would actually be successful but you know if uh mary Jo lepson jepson's uh, blue water for example right she's working on portable magneto uh basically portable fmri um and you know if that becomes possible yeah this stuff this is going to get interesting. Um, yeah, I, I always had the the idea that if you could reverse engineer villains, because the villains are what uh, <clears throat> a lot of the scary movies are about. So if you uh, somehow, if you optimize the villain, that that's a, a way of optimizing a horror movie. Uh, that's, the hard part, of course, is you can't optimize, like the minute you try to do this at scale, Right. Yeah, that's right. where that's where it totally falls apart because you're totally different than I am. And, you know, I mean, and it's funny because the work I do on peak performance is sort of the other side of this coin. And we try to take things back all the way. I always say 
our interest is like foundational neurobiology. We want to go back as far back in the evolutionary chain as possible to kind of get avoid the like individual personality and individual genetics stuff. You got to get stuff that's sort of older than that in a sense um, to work on. And I don't like I, so I don't know how you're going to do that kind of stuff for like how do you create a supervillain that's scary for everyone? Right? Could I right. make a supervillain who's super terrifying to you? Yeah, for sure, easy. Can I do it for like a group of friends? Maybe because they share overlapping values and things like that. But to do it at scale, I don't quite know how you do that unless you're just kind of widowing things down to archetypes, which is what mostly happens mm -hmm. right now. And so like, you're right. I just don't know how to do it at scale in a way that you could make money off the movies. Yeah, I guess you'd have to hyper individualize the movie so everybody saw a different movie. <laughs> Uh, Which is, it seems to be, if you're looking at some of the, like, there's really arty neuro filmmaking going on right now, right? Like the stuff I was playing with in that pop sci article, there's a whole underground movement yeah. in filmmaking that has continued, you know, they're doing things with EEG and, you know, like based on your brainwave activity while you're watching the movie, you get different endings and different yeah. plots and like that stuff has, has been going on and is evolving. And that definitely, you know, I, I said this, um, I did a lecture for Singularity University a bunch of years ago for NBC, for executives at NBC. And I was talking to them about this. This is one of the things we talked about. I was like, you guys think healthcare and entertainment are separate fields. Yeah. And right now you're operating as if they have nothing to do with each other. But like, at, for example, at the Flow Research Collective, uh, Dr. Adam Ghazali is on a board. He's at UCSF. He developed the very first video game that has been approved by the FDA for the treatment of chronic decline in older adults. You can now go to the doctor, get a script to play his video game, and oh. it treats cognitive decline is like six major symptoms. It will treat two to three of them. You, there's okay. still some issues, but like it literally, um, in certain uh, in certain capabilities, it can reset like a brain of a six year old back to like a twenty year old brain, and it's literally in like six weeks of three times a week playing an hour of video games. So you're literally going to the doctor now and they're getting, giving them a prescription for a video game. And I tried to explain that. I was like talking to NBC guys. And I was like, guys, gals, you know, you don't like, you think healthcare is over here and entertainment's over here. And, but you know, 10 years from right now, <laughs> do you play a video game that's fun? Or do you play a video game that's fun and makes you smarter or more creative or better focused or less anxious or, right. you know, take your pick? It's no contest, right? Like, why would you just bother to, oh, I could have fun and get smarter or I can have fun. Like, who <laughs> does, right? I mean, like, who doesn't take that option? What, what are some of the other ways that you think emerging technology can contribute to things like cultivating flow or self-awareness or creativity? And since you've mentioned this synergy. So it's, it's interesting. I don't, that's not the work we do at the collective specifically. I try to stay away from technological interventions or pharmacological interventions, not because I don't think they're promising or interesting or anything else. It's just that I train people to react to crisis situations and I need something that's, they can, they, you know, that will work anywhere at any time. You know, the way I jokingly used to say this is, you know, in the early days of my journalism career, um, when I was covering all kinds of stuff, I was shot at on five separate occasions, right? Mm -hmm. I had a gun pointed at me or put my mouth or I was shot at, at no point during the, any of those, could I look at the guy who was shooting at me and be like, excuse me, so would you put down that weapon while I like 
quickly pull out this, you know, brainwave training headset so I can calm the fuck down and dodge your bullets, right? That's just not how the real world ever works. Um, and so, you know, we try to, we, we don't do that work. That said, I mean, clearly there's whatever the hell Elon Musk is working on with Neuralink and all right. that, like all that stuff is coming. I personally, and I am familiar with the original Harvard work that he was building out of, I think he's massively overstated how far they are and what their timetable is. I don't, I don't buy it um, based on what I know about like where the neuroscience is at when he started. So I hear things coming out of his mouth that I'm like, that would, okay, but you would have had to like make three or four or five like paradigm shifting discoveries along the way that all each of which would have revolutionized the field to be where you're you claim we are so i don't i believe he's doing the work i believe we'll get there i don't believe his timetable is accurate at all um and maybe i'm wrong right like i you know i i he's he's exaggerated timetables before right which is why i tend to think you know what i mean like (laughs) um i tend to think i've got some credibility here but besides that stuff we're seeing everything um, you could possibly imagine. And the work we're doing, just to like put it in context, we are trying right now, we're one of a number of teams that's building a biophysical-based flow detector, something that can read biometrics and tell you, are you in the state, are you not in the state, and then help you get there. And um, once we do that, we are planning on taking that information and coupling it. VR is very good for getting at flows, triggers. Video games are okay, but VR is really good. Um, AR actually may be even better. We don't quite know yet, but VR is really good. And we want to build virtual uh, high flow learning uh, learning uh, spaces, basically. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about that? What, what's that look like? Well, so inflow, and this is work done by the U.S. Department of Defense um, predominantly, we see learning rates spike 240 to 500%. Um, huge, huge acceleration in learning. Um and uh seems to be true for both knowledge acquisition and skills acquisition um and so flow states have triggers virtual reality is very good at sort of getting at those triggers so if we can build a virtual environment that can drive people into flow very quickly we want to use this for worker retraining because you know whether or not you think technological unemployment is a real thing or not a real thing um, and I, you know, I'm not nearly as pessimistic as a lot of other people are about this particular topic, but, you know, for sure, autonomous trucking is coming. Elon's, you know, building the, the trucks already in his factory in Texas. And even if you say the transition takes place slowly and the current fleet of trucks that's on the streets right now has to go into obsolescence before they're all going to be replaced, that date is still like somewhere 2035 to 38. Right. Like, so that basically means in the next 10 to 15 years, the largest blue collar employer in America, we have to reskill all those people. And so that's what I'm aiming at. Obviously, you could use the same platform for education. That's not my goal. I will happily license our tech to somebody else, but education means getting into a curriculum battle with parents and I will go nowhere near that. Like, I don't like parents. I don't like children. I don't want to have that argument. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the the things with technological unemployment, I I look at the other side of the equation and, and see how this emerging technology is exponentially increasing our capabilities. And so with, with exponentially greater capabilities, 
uh, as as we we think about it's not humans versus AI or humans versus robots. It's us with them. Right, for sure. That that this increases our capabilities. And somebody, oh, yeah. Tom, as you also know, the other side of this thing is that every time a tech has gone exponential, there's been an internet-sized opportunity tucked right inside that we Absolutely. were totally blind to, right? right. Um, and we see this over and over again. So, like, I'm real. I'm like, well, there are 14 technologies right now that I can name that are on exponential growth curves that haven't yet hit the market, like computers or apps have hit the market, right? Like right. that's coming. And we all, you know, anybody who's doing this work knows that's coming. So I'm really like, and everything you just talked about, we're, we're figuring out how to work with the AIs. We're figuring out how to work with the robots. We figured out that, you know, it's inefficient to try to get their humans out, right? Everybody tried to do that, whether it was, you know, Elon tried to do it at Tesla, BMW tried to do it, where they automated the entire plants and realized they were falling, like they were less productive and they had to put humans back in the chain and then yeah. productivity shot through the roof. That much is clear. And and we're getting better and better at this. So yeah, I'm not actually afraid of technological unemployment at all. I am interested in making uh, that, but it doesn't change the fact that people are going to have to get retrained. One way right. or another, they're going right. to have to get retrained and they're going to have to get retrained fairly yeah. quickly. I mean, we did this with the internet, right? And, yeah. But it, it worries me because I often think, I don't see, so the, there's a clear wealth gap, obviously, like, right, we, we, we right. see that. Right. But when you look under the hood of that, everything I see tells me that's not a wealth gap, it's a digital divide. Meaning okay. everybody figured out how to digitize their business they're making money right now. Everyone yeah. who didn't is struggling. That's what happened, right? Like the, the idea that the rich are getting richer, or the poor are getting, like none of those things are true. What is happening is there's a digital divide and yeah. helping people cross that divide faster <clears throat> seems like a good thing to do. Yeah, as we're uh, exponentially increasing our capabilities, we're also uh, increasing the number of startups that come out of all this emerging technology. And uh, that's, that's and, by the way, and uh, to emphasize that again, because this is what I was thinking, we're getting better and better at teaching people how to run startups in a sense. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I absolutely. mean, you have to remember that, like, you know, it's, it's so funny because people are like, well, one out of 10 startups is going to succeed. The other nine are going to fail. And I'm, and I'm always like, you know, that's numbers that come from a time when the only advice most startups were getting were coming from VCs. Right, and right. You know, as a general rule, the VCs I've met are not people I'd want to take business advice from. Like they, <laughs> they're just not. Like yeah. there, there's a, I, you know, there's a, I, I don't have a lot of good things to say about that particular community, especially with their level of vision and their level of humanity and how to run a company. We are getting better and better at the human side of it. Our, you know, whether it's Y Combinate or Singularity University or whatever, the incubators are getting better. Yeah. The work myself and everybody else on the performance enhancement side is get is doing like we have a we when i started this work i used to say that the line with flow in the real world was we understand enough neurobiology of basic peak performance up to flow and learning and flow and creativity and that was the wall and once you took learning into education right what does it look like in classrooms you've got yeah. case studies you no longer you don't have data and once you took flow out of kind of 
uh, creativity and move it into innovation in actual companies. Same thing, case studies, not data. That has changed. Like I've got a textbook over my right shoulder on flow and education that came out last year. So we've now got textbooks on that stuff and you're starting to see <laughs> the same work on the innovation side. It's a few years behind the education side, but we're starting to really understand what is the neurobiology of innovation? How does it work inside a company? Where does it go wrong? How does it go wrong? How do we help here? And so everything you're looking at, I think times 10 or so, because we're better at the human stuff than we were when this ecosystem started first emerging and the, the guys who were trying to steer an innovation ecosystem, like their experience was on Wall Street. Right. Like right. that's like that's not good trading for, you know, how do you how do you start a company? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I've been predicting is that we're actually moving into an era of super employment <clears throat> that we're going to have more jobs than than ever before. It's it's just that a lot of these jobs are going to be gigs, not full time jobs. I agree with that, too. I agree with that, too. And I and I do. Um, I you know, it's and I. I'm interested, we, we, like the, the downloadable learning, right? At some, at some point, something like that's going to start to become possible, right? Where yeah. it'll reskill people fairly quickly. And, you know, I, I wrote a, like that work is, I've been covering that work, like downloadable consciousness and accelerated learning and all that stuff. I've been covering writing about like the actual science behind it since like 95. And yeah. the progress is kind of astounding. Like there's real work going on there um, also. But I think until we get there, there's like a 10 to 15 year, like I agree with you. I think all those things are happening. And if we're wobbly, it's like now through 2035-ish. And then um, I see it stabilizing. But again, I, as I said, I'm not a futurist. I'm just a guy with opinions. Right. <laughs> so in the, uh, in the closing minutes here, Stephen, I actually want to turn one of your questions uh, back around on you and ask you what is the what are the coolest things you're paying attention to right now? What are what are the things that excite you the most that you think are not getting enough attention? The things that excite me the most that are not getting enough attention. Um, uh, yeah, how rude of you to ask him? Yeah, I don't. I, it's, yeah. So I, I mean, I, I don't know how to answer what aren't getting enough attention. The second half of that is because, like, I can tell you the stuff that I'm really interested in. I can tell you the reason it's not getting a lot of attention is because it's weird shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like um, that. And, and, and but um, I am really so. One thing that's starting to happen that's really interesting is we are starting to be able to link network level behavior in the brain um, to actual human behavior. And that's interesting. That's like a systems level view of the brain that we're now being able to translate into behavior. That's super cool. I don't know where that leads. I know what it means a little bit for flow research, but I don't know what it means mm -hmm. uh, for anything else. But I think that's super interesting. I'm working um, besides flow onset, the, the stuff that really has my attention is I've been working a lot on the neurobiology of intuition. Intuition gets turned up very loud in Interesting. flow. Um, and it's been a longstanding, I mean, almost 100-year puzzle. Why does that happen? Why is intuition so good in flow? Why does the hit rate go up? Is that an illusion? And what's interesting is we're starting to be able to answer questions like that. So that stuff is really interesting to me. Um, that stuff that I'm paying um, a lot of attention to. Um, I'm trying to think. So what's, what's the next yeah. inter internet-sized opportunity? 
coming down the pike that uh, well i so the, i mean you know the one i'll tell you the one thing that's really interesting to me i've been saying this for a while which is so i talked earlier about how virtual reality is really good at getting flows triggers to work here's right. the thing you have to understand about flow the state is directly correlated with overall well-being life satisfaction meaning purpose all those things go through the roof so does happiness the neurochemicals that underpin flow are the five most addictive drugs sort of known to man. What this means is that there's going to come a point fairly soon when we can create virtual worlds that are more fun, more interesting, more pleasurable, and more meaningful than actual physical worlds. Yeah, That's okay. really interesting to me. That's, you know, Ray's talking about the singularity where we can no longer predict past the point because we're going to have a, a brain computer interface. And okay, that's well out there still from what I'm talking about. Cause what I'm talking about is really like, we think video games are addictive. Wait till, you know, we see what we can do in VR. Um, and then you start adding in things like haptics and sex and, you know, all the things that we know happens to, to technology. And I go, wow, this is a really interesting, this is a, there's going to be a point sometime in the next 10 years where people start checking into the matrix and don't come back. Yeah. And we've already seen some of these trends, right? There's a whole generation in Japan. They have a, like a, a word from the kids who won't leave their house, right. who just live their life online and have just sort of opted out. And the online is getting much more kind of addictive and meaningful and interesting. And, you know, it's getting more like William Gibson and, and Neil Stevenson's cyberspace mm -hmm. than anything we've seen previously. Right, right. That's really like that's an opportunity. I mean, like, you, you know, that's VR and AR is the internet sized opportunity that's right directly sort of, I think in front of everybody. Um, but I've been hesitant to, I, I, I don't know when you can put a stake in the ground and say, okay, this is the, you know what I mean? Like I would have told you last year was the year for AR. Every expert in the world would have told you the same thing, but none of us saw COVID coming. Right. 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 So, um, <laughs> But I mean, like I remember standing with Peter, like, you know, two months before COVID happened and he was, you know, talking about Tim Cook's prediction about AR for Apple. Like, I mean, just, you know, outrageous stuff about what was coming and, you know, none of it happened. And instead AI and quantum computing, you know, had a, you know, had, had a year to remember because, you know, that was what we needed for COVID. So like those technologies ended up doing what we thought AR and VR was going to do last year. So like, I, you know, I don't know how you predict that stuff and I'm, I'm unwilling to do it because of black swan events and things like that. But right. I, I still, you know what I mean? I still think, I think that stuff is really interesting. Yeah. Let me ask one final question is, um, is CRISPR technology, the pathway to the singularity? I mean, we, we'd be able to design designer babies. They grew up, to be super babies, superhumans, and is this the the pathway to transhumanism and the singularity? So, I again not a futurist, <laughs> just a guy with an opinion here. I don't think it's CRISPR alone, and the reason is this: um, I am not sold on genetics in the way a lot of people are sold on genetics, meaning has not proven to be the operating system, the master operating system. And, you know, a, no sooner had we uncovered the genome than people were like, oh, wait, the connectome, the proto, 
proteome, the microbiome, the blah, 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 blah. So I'm not convinced genetics is the master regulating system that everybody thinks it, thinks it is. And clearly we don't have a decent understanding of epigenetics, but all the work I do, which is on the mental side of the equation, on the, on the nurture, not the nature okay. side of the equation, says, hey, wait a minute, the genetics are always only 50% of the equation. And anytime we try to overstate that, we make errors. Um, now, will we manage to edit genetic diseases out of the gene code? And is that the first step towards a kind of a, a, a more robust immune system that we've never seen before? Yeah. Like that stuff I think is, I think is true. On the other side of it, I just don't know. And every time we've bet on the genetics, they've turned out to be less powerful, not more powerful. Interesting. Okay. Um, but you know, and I, and I, and I, the other thing I will say is that a lot of people in the, in the community you and I are in, you know what I mean? Where that, where this work kind of work gets done. There are a lot of people who are very bullish on genetics. So I think genetics gets a lot of attention gets, and, and it, I'm not, I'm not yet convinced it's the be all end all you are. I mean, obviously you think CRISPR is the way to <laughs> superhuman technology. And as I said, I'm not, I'm just a guy with opinions here. Like once you get into the futurism realm, you know, I may yeah. be more learned than the guy on the street selling tires, but not much. <laughs> well, fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephen. This has been great. Thanks guys. It was fun hanging out with you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>